Wikipediacast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me today is Samantha Pell. Samantha, what's going on? Uh, not a lot, you know. I'm uh, just trying to get back in the swing of things with hockey, so uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, you cover the Capitals, so there's a lot going on. Uh, they've been <laughs> yes. very busy this offseason, and uh, you're definitely underselling uh, the interest of this team. You know, I did um, the watchability rankings recently with Jeff Merrick, and we had, well, I had the Washington Capitals as ninth on my list and mm. i deliberately sidestepped getting into a deep conversation with him about them because i knew i was <laughs> going to have you on the show so i'm saving this deep dive and uh, i'm looking forward to doing this one right, how, what's uh what's it kind of been like recently just in terms of, of kind of familiarizing yourself with all the moves and sort of um getting back in the swing of things and and just the sort of unpredictable nature i guess the offseason and sort of how the capitals have navigated it all yeah, you know, I think it's been super interesting because, you know, right off the bat, I mean, the Caps are out of the postseason for the second time in a row in the first round. You kind of anticipate some type of coaching move happening, maybe not that fast. Uh, but, you know, Todd Reardon gets out a few days after they leave the bubble. All of a sudden, the Caps are looking for a new head coach, and it just kind of spirals from there. I think the additions that the Capitals tried to add early, you know, you think about a Henrik Lundqvist. Um, they added him. That was probably, I thought, the splashiest move of the offseason as far as the Capitals. And then... Here we go, and uh, the Caps go ahead and signs and Deo Chara last week. Um, <laughs> so a lot of really big moves from the Capitals, and you know Brian McClellan. I think he said, I think it was just a few days before that Chara signing, maybe a week, that you know we're happy with our team, we're happy with our roster. You know we can maybe you know still sign a couple guys if you know we they think we're the right fit, and then. He goes ahead and he signs uh, Craig Anderson to a PTO and then Chara a few days after. So I think Brian McCollin always, you know, thinking of something, always has something up his sleeve there. But yeah, overall, definitely a wild offseason for the Capitals. Well, for me, like the reason why I said oh, I have the Capitals as like a top 10 team of, of interest for me is like usually what I'm looking for is... But especially when it comes to kind of projecting future performance or what figuring out what teams are going to look like is either teams that have new players of consequence that they're going to be trying to work into the mix and seeing how that's going to unfold or teams that are going to figure to sort of use their existing players differently. And that's usually because of a coaching change. And in this case, the Capitals kind of check both those boxes. And I think it's a bit strange that there is so much uncertainty just before a team that, you know, has been anchored by Alex Ovechkin and Nick Backstrom for over a decade now. And uh, so they still have those uh, kind of familiar faces and uh, pillars in place, but around them, it feels like they're kind of one of the most sort of eclectic or, or weirdest, uh, <laughs> most strangely put together teams based on all the sort of uh, different ways they went about uh, adding to the team this off season. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, just the Capitals top six, I mean, it's the same top six group as their 2018 cup run. Um, so that, you know, is completely stagnant. That stayed the same. You have your leaders in Ovechkin and Backstrom and Tom Wilson, Oshie, um, you know, Verona Kuznetsov. Those guys are all here. Uh, John Carlson, Dmitry Orlov, still here. Um, so a lot of the same faces. Lars Eller, um, still here. And then, yeah, you have kind of these like odd cast of characters around them. You have Achara, you have a Justin Schultz, you have a Connor Sherry. Um, you have Carl Haglund, who's been here for a couple of years now, Richard Ponick. So yeah, definitely a lot of odd faces that have kind of mixed in with this group. Um, but yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of uncertainty. I think people have asked me, you know, what are the expectations for the Capitals this season? Like where realistically do I even see them falling in the East? And I think the biggest thing for me is I have no clue. I think this team can fare very well. They can do very well in a pandemic shortened season, get off to a blazing start like they did last year and really just go after it. Or if they could kind of look like that second half team that they were last season where they kind of fell apart. There was no cohesion. It seemed like all that energy they had early on was just kind of gone. And plus you're adding a whole new system with Peter Laviolette. You have all these new faces. Uh, you lose Braden Holpe. You have a really, really young goaltender in Ilya Samsonov in net. So a lot of moving things for the Capitals and a lot is hedging on a lot of different pieces at this point. Yeah, I I kind of embrace that unknown or that uncertainty. And it's kind of reassuring to see that a lot of the preseason models that I trust, whether it's Michael McCurdy's or Dom Lutician's, uh, mm-hmm. have them all. Like I think Micah's has them flat at 50% chance to make the playoffs. So it's essentially <laughs> a coin flip. Yeah. Dom's is a bit more generous for them. But, you know, they've been a team that has typically um, outperformed those because of their skill level and their ability to um, outperform the shot metrics. But okay, so the plan here today is we're going to deep dive this team. I want to hopefully come away from this conversation over the next hour. Uh, 
feeling like we have a bit of a better sense of what to expect here and uh, trying to unpack all their moves. So um, I guess the natural starting place for us is sort of going back to the bubble and the last time we saw this team play. And I think a big driving force for all the change this offseason was how last season ended. And it's not so much that they lost because I think, you know, 30 teams out of 31 technically uh, fall short of their end goal. But I think it's more so the fashion in which they went out. And and I'm not particularly interested in speculating about the rumors of like how seriously they took it or what was going on behind the scenes. I think it's not necessary for us because you can kind of just look at the data in terms of how badly they were outplayed by the Islanders and how okay. the management group treated this offseason in terms of making a bunch of sort of leadership and fundamental changes. And so I guess that's a, that's a good place for us to start. Like how do you... Th- buy into that idea that sort of just based on how they looked the last time we saw them, they felt like it was kind of an untenable uh, situation or sort of a, they couldn't really afford to just kind of hand wave it and roll it back with the same entire group because they felt like something was kind of fundamentally wrong. Yeah. I mean, I definitely feel like they felt like they had a lack of urgency in the bubble. Um, I think Brian McCullen, I think it must have been a month or two into the offseason, he said that he felt like the team was, its culture was slipping. And I don't think you ever want to hear a GM of any organization say that their team's culture is slipping. And so I think once he said that, it was kind of a sign still delivered, like a lot of changes needed to be done um, for this team. And I think, you know, it started off with, you know, hiring Peter Laviolette. He's a guy that Brian McClellan and the whole organization really feels like can come in and get the most out of guys that maybe have been playing at their best the last couple of seasons. I think a lot of people will point to like a Evgeny Kuznetsov, right? How do you get the most out of the player like him who's so dynamic when he's good, um, but, you know, tends to kind of drop off at a lot of points in the season. So they felt like a guy like Peter Laviolette could come in and kind of push his buttons a little bit. Um, you know, Alex Ovechkin, I don't think he really needs his buttons to be pushed, but maybe a coach with a Stanley Cup to his resume will come in here and actually help him out a bit, help him get motivated again, help him, you know, lead the rest of the team. I think another reason for all of this was just they look so lackadaisical in the bubble. I think a lot of people, when they watch Capitals hockey throughout the season, they got to the bubble and it just felt like that extra edge that maybe they once had was just completely gone. It looked like their energy was completely zapped. It didn't really look like they were playing up to the pace of the Islanders at all. So, yeah, I think all of those things and above made the management really step back and say, okay, we really do feel like the window, again, is closing. It's closing rapidly. How do we win now? And that started with Peter Laviolette. Yeah, I think it's always dangerous to... Um you know, overreact the five game samples. We've seen a bunch of teams uh, over the years have sort of premature playoff exits and then panic and, and make their team worse in the long run. And, and especially under the unique circumstances of the pandemic and then having to come back and, and play. Um, it, it's unfair to put too much stock into. I will say though, just, yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head there from just watching them and sort of the pace or the preparation or, or, or any way you want to describe it compared to the Islanders team they, fa- they were facing was, night and day and i was kind of trying to refresh myself because i remember it being a pretty um you know lackluster performance or sort of lacking mm-hmm. any sort of edge or any sort of uh, bite to their offense and and the stats were were blowing me away a bit where in the five games they managed just three five on five goals as a team uh in game one they had 10 high danger chances and then in the next four games they failed to get anywhere close to double digits they averaged under 25 shots on goal per game in that series and the game i think the the thing that really kind of uh sealed todd reardon's fate and really put this offseason in emotion for them was that game five clincher where they finished the game with 21 total shots on goal six Mm -hmm. high danger chances get shut out and it was about as like kind of going out without a whimper as you possibly can as a team where like it, it seemed like they had already uh, mentally at least kind of just like packed their bags and were ready for the full off season to begin. And, and maybe that's unfair, but I just based purely on what we saw on the ice, it certainly felt that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there is something to say of, yeah, maybe it's a little bit unfair to say, oh, they completely checked out, but you're right. Like the way that they were playing, the way that it all unfolded, it did seem like, okay, Alex Ovechkin had that one really great game that, you know, you kind of felt that life uh, in the Capitals again, and then all of a sudden the next game just went away. Um, so, yeah, I think overall it was just kind of, okay, you're in a bubble, you're in Toronto, you're away from your families. They had all these different, you know, reasons to why they wouldn't do well. But I think overall 
the organization felt like, okay, it's been two years in a row that we've been out in the first round. We need to make something happen. We need to make a change. Alex Ovechkin is not getting younger. Um, that was the overall sentiment, I'm pretty sure, of the organization. Yeah, and with a team like theirs, it's kind of constructed where you have such a significant percentage of the cap committed to the top four or five players. It's the GM's job to... I guess, tinker on the edges or optimize the money around them. And and so that's a good transition for us to actually talk about some of the offseason moves they made and the additions they made. And and so I'm going to run through them really quickly here just to uh, to kind of jog the memories of our listeners, listeners and then we're going to get into them uh, on a deeper level one by one. But So they brought back Brendan Dillon uh, four years, nearly $16 million, which is a very lucrative deal for this offseason standards where four years were not being handed out to a lot of players. Uh, they signed Hendrik Lundqvist, who unfortunately, as you mentioned, has um, since taken a step back from hockey. And I think we all wish him the best health. And hopefully we get to see him on the ice one day again soon. But um, there are much more important things at hockey. They poached Justin Schultz and Connor Sheary from the Penguins. They brought in Trevor Van Riesdyk as uh, some insurance on the blue line. And then most recently they added Zdeno Chara. And so, I don't know, let's get into the Chara thing right now mm-hmm. because uh, it was the most recent move and it kind of did definitely push me over the top where I was like planning this show with you and we were talking about doing <laughs> Capitals deep dive and then after they made that move, I was like, okay, we have to do this conversation now because there's just too much going on. Um, let's kind of walk through the, the sort of that process like in terms of what you gather from the moment that he realized that he wasn't going to be a member of the Bruins anymore, where it seems like they made it kind of clear that they're moving in a different direction to the him picking the capitals, I guess, because I imagine there was quite a bit of interest from other teams to bring him in on a similar deal and sort of how mm-hmm. that partnership came together and sort of the expectations for both from the team's perspective for him and, and from him uh, for the team, because he obviously chose the capitals for a reason. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So my understanding with this is, you know, Chara basically said, okay, if I go back to Boston, the Bruins basically made it clear that I'd be in a reserve role, right? Not going to be starting every single game. I'm not going to be a regular in the lineup. And he really felt like at his age, you know, he's almost 44 in March. Um, He felt like he can still play every game. He felt like he can still go in and compete. And I guess once those negotiations were made clear to him, that's what his role was. He kind of turned his interest to other teams the capitals reached out only a few days before the deal was actually made official so this moved pretty fast from the capitals point of view and Chara's point of view but i think both sides kind of mutually agreed that this was the best thing moving forward now chara i believe before he signed here he only talked to peter laviolette he really didn't have a conversation with brian mcclellan um but anything role wise it was just you know talk to peter see what he thinks about me coming to the team okay we're good and we're going to move forward so I think overall the organization just really, you know, wanted a guy like Chara. I think he's very similar to a Henrik Lundqvist, right? A veteran leader, someone who's proven himself, um, someone looking for a new spot to land. And so I think the Capitals really, it can't be said enough how much I think they wanted a guy with veteran leadership, that experience, um, someone to come into the locker room who will just have that extra voice, another sounding board for some of the younger guys, maybe a motivating factor for some of the older guys. Also, you know, the Caps could need him on the blue line. It's a pretty crowded blue line for the Capitals right now. Um, you know, like you said, they extended Dylan. They added Schultz. They added a TVR. They have a Nick Jensen. Um, they have a young guy in Jonas Siegenthaler. So there's a lot of bodies on the Capitals blue line. But, I mean, Chara only makes it better. And I'm sure you'll see Chara out in the ice in really, you know, important situations for the Capitals throughout the season. But, Overall, nothing's been promised to Chara in terms of his role. They haven't said, okay, you're definitely playing a top four role. Um, It doesn't seem like they even have a spot for him in the top four right now. So it looks like he's going to be a third-pairing guy. How many games he gets, um, yet to be seen. But that's so far kind of the plan with him. Which might not be the worst thing. Like, I'm I'm sure that he... Like he's the ultimate competitor, right? And he's kind of like a super proud guy that wants to be out there. And why he chose the Caps is because he felt like they would give him a chance to do so, at least compared to the Bruins. But I've been saying for for years now that it felt like, you know, for him playing on a, a contender, it was silly that he was playing every night, that he was still playing 21, 22 minutes a night. I mean, he was averaging over 21 minutes mm-hmm. a night per game as recently as last season for the Bruins. And it felt like, you know, they could have, load managed him a bit better taken more nights off here there preserved him for the postseason and so for the capitals they kind of have that luxury where they can probably do that i think we've seen that teams have acknowledged um the fact that this is a very unique season in terms of 
sort of how condensed it's going to be and how many games are going to be played in a short order and with injuries and we've already seen the capitals know for sure now that they're mm-hmm. not going to have michael kepney right like they they want to mm-hmm. load up you can never have too many defensemen so it seems like it's a good fit from there in terms of his performance um we're kind of walking into uncharted waters because he's about to turn 44 and he's played like 1800 total games or so <laughs> in nhl and, yeah. and it just like we don't really have a lot of uh parallels or examples to point to him and be like oh this this is what we can expect from him but i think that you know he can still kill penalties he can still be used situationally mm-hmm. in defensive minutes and i think for a capitals team that and we talked about definitely should not be taking uh a playoff berth for granted and it's going to be a fight mm-hmm. and we'll see if they make it but if they do wind up playing important games down the stretch we know that officials like to uh kind of throw the rule book out the window come the postseason or, or maybe look the other way sometimes. And he's the sort of ultimate beneficiary of being able to uh, kind of lean on opposing forwards and use his size mm-hmm. to his advantage. And so it seems like they can afford to kind of ease him into this and maybe pick their spots with him, hoping that come the postseason, if they're there, um, they'll be able to get extra utility out of him. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, just overall kind of talking about the Caps blue line, I think, you know, Capitals assistant coach Kevin McCarthy, who came over with LaViolette, a um, longtime coach with him, he's basically stated that, you know, he's okay with having eight or nine probably defensemen available to him on the active roster. You know, he feels like because of this pandemic shortened season, because of so many back to backs, because of, you know, any coronavirus injuries or illnesses, anything related to that, they're going to need a lot of bodies on that blue line. So it just seems very natural that Char would be a good fit here. I'm sure he can play up if they really need him to play up. Um, But, you know, they have guys on the left with Orlov, with Dylan. Uh, McCarthy and Laviolette are very big into left-right pairing. So it seems like, you know, that's kind of where it's going to go later on in the season. But, yeah, I think overall he's a really good addition to the blue line. And, yeah, I, I just think his veteran leadership probably is one of the biggest things that maybe we tend to always say uh, and maybe overlook, but I really think it's going to help out this room. Yeah, it seems weird that the Bruins would have looked at him, and obviously he's not the player he once was, understanding mm-hmm. his age and all those miles, but um, it's I, I don't think, I mean, they're misguided. They think they have six better defensemen than Zidane Chara, even at this stage of his career. I think <laughs> part of it probably was like, if you're the Bruins and you have this uh, sort of relationship with Char already and, and everything he's done for the franchise, it's really tough to have him in that reserve role, kind of playing him every once in a while and, and, and picking your spots. Whereas with Washington, he kind of walks in. He is Zidane Char, obviously, and he's going to get a ton of attention, but he comes in with more of a clean slate and a new relationship. And it feels like uh, from the Bruins perspective, not, um, you know, just kind of reading the tea leaves that walking away from him kind of symbolize like that they're moving on into this kind of new era, even though they still, um, you know, have Bergeron and Marshall and Pasternak that it's, they're turning the leaf on that. Whereas in Washington, he does get that, that fresh start and he gets eight games against the Bruins this season. So I I imagine that was kind of appealing to them as well to prove to them that they made a mistake and, and that he can keep playing in the league. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, Char is really big into motivation, right? He's so big into fitness. He's so big into working out and having that routine. And I feel like he's such a competitor through and through. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think he's definitely going to turn down eight games against his former team who basically said, you know, go ahead, we're going to put you in a reserve role, um, even though you were our captain for 14 years. So definitely, I think something to prove there. Well, and then like the leadership thing is is one thing, I think, you know, with Laviolette and Ovechkin and, and some of the guys that have been on the team for a while, there is leadership there. I think the uh, the accountability component of it is an entirely another thing. It seems like they're sort of really um, viewing that as, as the biggest selling point here, especially kind of tying it back to what we were just talking about, what happened in the bubble, where, um, you know, if Zidane Ochara is in the room and, and he's telling you not to mess around and to take it seriously like he does like you're you're probably going to wind up listening so all they're all professionals obviously but it does feel like that was probably uh the biggest selling point to go along with all the on ice stuff yeah and i definitely think there's a point to say you know char didn't say look i'm going to come in here but i know it's alex's and peter's team you know like he knows that he's not coming in and he is the guy in washington um but you know he just adds that extra layer i think it's kind of like a Braden holpy right they lost one of their biggest leaders in the room in Braden, he's gone. Char is kind of coming in um, and another leader. So I think John Carlson said the other day, you can, I mean, you can never have too many leaders in the room. Um, and while that's very cliche, I, again, I do think that's very true in this case. Well, okay. So let's talk about that. And you mentioned Peter Laviolette. Um, 
he comes in as the new coach. He definitely comes in uh, as another strong personality that's going to be preaching accountability and asking a lot of the players and getting them to buy in and all that jazz. He has the track record of early success, and I think that was probably appealing for for this organization where they're viewing their window to win with some of the veterans they have on the team and going, looking at it and sort of going, hmm, well, Peter Laviolette usually in the first two or three years of taking over a team gets them to go on a pretty long run and seems like, you know, he gets that strong buy-in early in his tenures with a fresh message to a new team. And so, you know, in year two with the Hurricanes, he wins the cup. In year one with the Flyers, he makes the cup final. In year three with the Predators, he makes the cup final. And so they're probably viewing that as, our best bet to try and uh, get the most out of this group in the moment, as opposed to building something more long-term here. But beyond the typical platitudes, like what I'm interested in is kind of what tangible X's and O's changes we're going to see here, because I feel like just from everything you've heard and read about the team, like it's one thing, the, the accountability and playing the right way and changing the culture. But it seems like they also like fundamentally want to, play a different style or a different brand of hockey than they were playing last time because they felt like clearly mm-hmm. that could only take them so far and maybe they'd phased out of it. I'm really curious to see like sort of what changes he installs, like how he uses the players, whether um, he has them playing a different style entirely. He's already talked, I think, about how he wants them to play kind of more straight line, fast speed, and maybe be more defensively oriented. What are you sort of feeling in terms of um, – you know, the organization's appetite to change and sort of how Laviolette's going to go about doing that. Yeah, I've definitely asked a lot of guys about Laviolette's system and kind of first impressions with it. And it definitely feels like there's a main focus on the D guys. Um, they're no longer going to be kind of sitting back and waiting around. They're definitely going to be part of the offense, a big big part of the offense. Um, I think in comparison to Todd Reardon's system and in comparison to Barry Trotz's system, um, you know, they've been running a lot of O-zones, just different I guess the way they kind of cycle um, in practice. And it just seems like the D is so involved. They're crossing up top um, just seems like it's a system that's going to really help them moving forward, especially if they're so offensive minded and they want more of their guys to contribute. So I think those are kind of the main things with his system is definitely five man unit. Definitely D guys are jumping up. It's definitely fast. It's quick. Um, you know, I think a lot of the times the Capitals were kind of in line with physical, fast hockey, and I don't really think that changes in Laviolette's system at all. Um, but I just know a lot of guys have said it's a lot of moving up ice. It's a lot of making sure you're always, you know, moving. You're never standing still. Um, you're not just going to make the first pass and kind of sit back. They're going to be a fast team that gets everyone on the ice involved. So those are kind of the early impressions I've had with Laviolette's system. John Carlson basically said it's just a variation of other systems that he's had before. But um, realistically, a lot of the guys just look like they were still trying to learn pro- probably the first couple of days of practice, looking at whiteboards, Laviolette's pulling a bunch of them aside, kind of showing them the ropes, exactly what to do. So it definitely is going to be a change uh, for the Capitals, but I don't think it's a drastic, drastic change is what they wanted to play earlier, which was physical fast hockey. Yeah, I guess part of the reason why it got my spidey senses tingling a little bit or kind of got on my radar um, was because I think, you know, typically you'd you'd want your coaches to um, work to the strengths of the personnel or to try to sort of hide or camouflage the weaknesses to make Mm -hmm. the players or put them in the best possible situation to succeed. And I think with La Violette, certainly he's gotten the reputation of kind of like he has his style, he has his vision for how he wants his team to play. And it's up to the players to sort of fit around that. And if you buy in and you fit in with that, like you're going to love playing for him. He's going to play you a lot. You're going to have a great time and you're probably going to succeed. But if you don't, and if you don't fit in either stylistically or because you're like, hey, I've been successful playing this one way. Why would I change now just because this new guy came in? You're going to clash and it'll probably suck. And, and it's been interesting seeing like former players of his definitely. Um, it's very divisive in terms of sort of their lasting impressions of, of how it was to play under him based on how their certain playing style fit into his vision of how they should be playing. Yeah, I think that is super interesting because I think like, Right now, right, we're in a couple of days into training camp. They're just kind of learning everything. I think a lot of the guys just feel like it's a lot of information being thrown at them at once. So they're still learning. They haven't even, you know, really practiced at all, actually, you know, power play, penalty kill. Those things are just really trying to get down the work in the O zone, the D zone, um, the neutral zone, just trying to figure out exactly where they're supposed to be and when. 
Um, so yeah, I think overall, I think we talked to Nick Jensen today and he was even saying he was pretty honest and he said, yeah, I think Peter Laviolette's system is going to work better for me and it's going to be more beneficial for me and just how fast it moves than in past systems in Washington where he kind of struggled really last year um, once they got him. So yeah, I definitely think it's going to play to certain players' strengths and it'll be super interesting to see if Laviolette makes any changes moving forward. But even a John Carlson, Dimitri Orlov top pairing is different. Um, they haven't been together really at all starting a game in, during their time in Washington. So that was one of the biggest things I think that jumped out for a lot of us here. Yeah, I'm curious because I think like similarly, a John Torello, for example, had a similar reputation of like, he's been successful coaching one way and he's not going to change. He's very sort of stingy or, or just kind of stubborn and set in his ways, right? And then mm-hmm. he got let go and he took some time off. And then when he came back, still obviously had those same principles, but Mm -hmm. seemed like he had spent some time kind of like reflecting and adapting and evolving and realized the game was changing. And we'll see. Like, I I am curious because I think Laviolette does a lot of good things as a coach. I think obviously he was let go for a reason as well in Nashville and they were unhappy with the way Mm -hmm. things were going. And so I get it. Like when you're in your fifties and you've had a lot of success doing things a certain way, it's really tough to change sometimes, but um, with the league changing, it's up to coaches to do like do so as well. And so, um, you know, time will only tell in, in that regard, but I think whenever there's a new coach and there's players that are already in place, like it, there's going to be like clear favorites or people that benefit from it. And then there's going to be people who are uh, looking a lot different and kind of wishing that the system had stayed the same because uh, <laughs> you know, it benefited them more. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I think it's so interesting that Laviolette's coming in with so many big names with him, right? Like Achara's new, Justin Schultz is new, Brennan Dillon, really. I mean, he only played, I think it was like eight regular season games with the Caps um, once he joined at the trade deadline last season. So, and Connor Sherry, I mean, he's adding a lot of new guys that he can probably, um, you know, work into this already veteran group. But I think overall, he said, I think he said multiple times that he's pretty happy with the guys that you know, have already been here. He already knows that the guys in the power play and the penalty kill have been here forever. So he knows that he can kind of trust that system. And he'll obviously let those assistant coaches, Scott O'Neill, Blake Forsythe, um, kind of do those things and kind of help teach him what these guys' strengths are. Obviously, he's played against them for such a long time. But obviously, now being with them, is probably a little bit different. So yeah, I think moving forward, it'll be really interesting to see if things change, if philosophies change. But you're right. I think for right now, this is Laviolette's system. This is his team. And uh, we're just going to see how it goes. We're going to see how it goes. Uh, let's take a quick <laughs> break here to hear from a sponsor. And then we're going to pick up the conversation on the other end of things. Hey, everyone. I want to tell you about Blue Wire Hustle, a brand new program where you can host your very own podcast here at Blue Wire. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take their podcast to the next level. Or, if you always wanted to host a podcast but never knew where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As of Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to our community Discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. And on top of that, we'll help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all the other listening platforms where you typically get your podcasts. And the best part is, you'll get all of this for only $15 a month. That's essentially the same rate as any other hosting site would charge you just for the initial setup without all of those perks. So whether you're starting from scratch or have an existing show that you want to grow, Hustle is an open door to leveling up your sports experience. Acceptance into this program is limited, so get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com join. Check out the description box for this podcast to find out more, but that's bwhustle.com join. All right, um, I guess... You know, tying into the system, we're talking a lot about the defensemen and sort of, I mentioned earlier how I think the team identified Laviolette yeah, because they wanted to change the way they play a little bit. I think, you know, for people that were following the team very closely and watching them on a daily basis, they realized that I think for outsiders that weren't totally paying attention or weren't kind of keyed in on the team, they didn't really realize um, how many sort of defensive flaws there were or, or, or sort <laughs> of what the team was doing. You'd look at Braden Holtby's save percentage, for example, you'd go like, okay, well, that's clearly not what it should be or mm-hmm. what we're used to from him. But then you look at a lot of the underlying uh, or the underlying numbers or sort of the models that take into account, um, you know, some of the stuff that affects goalie save percentage, like pre-shot movement or screens or sort of where they're facing the shots from and, and what's happening in front of them. And 
they looked very poor uh, for the the Capitals and kind of uh, you know empathized a little bit with Braden Holdby's numbers and, and maybe made it seem a bit better than they actually were. And so I guess for the Capitals, the question for them here is going to be how they do get better defensively. They've obviously changed the personnel a little bit, but for the new coach coming in, he's already talked about how he wants the defense to play differently, how he wants the team to get better defensively, but how do they accomplish that without going too far from what made them special offensively because we saw I think Capitals fans listening are going to shudder but you know in in 2012 when Dale Hunter comes in he places this major emphasis on the team needs to play way differently we need to be super defensively responsible and they become a top 10 defense but then their offense becomes a bottom five offense and completely uh you know moves away from funneling everything through Ovechkin and I think it's reflected as like a very poor era in capital in capitals hockey. And so I'm really curious to see how Laviolette and this and this coaching staff accomplish that um, in terms of finding that good balance between like you want your defenseman to jump up and be more active, but I'm not sure that you want to with the personnel they have and the age of this group that you want to get into this track meet style where you're just constantly having to defend off the rush and kind of play on your heels because I don't think that's suited for them either. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, I think you nailed it right on the head. You definitely don't have enough resources there just in your forage group to kind of play that track meet type of style. I mean, that's not really an Alex Ovechkin type of game. Um, that might be a Evgeny Kuznetsov or a Jacob Verona type of game. But for some of these guys, that's just not possible. So yeah, I think overall, I think with the defensemen, I mean, we kind of saw it with Carlson last season where maybe he wasn't the best in his own zone. Um, and things kind of got away from him there. I know the Capitals had tried to move Orlov to his offside at, at one point in the season. I think it was late. Things didn't go well there. They tried to make it seem like some little different types of movements and just never really clicked for them. So, you know, I think it'll be really interesting to see if Kevin McCarthy comes in and kind of has his own way of doing the defense and he's going to try it and he's going to realize pretty early on that it doesn't work or how he's going to play to different guys' strengths. But I think overall, when you just glance over at the blue line, it's a John Carlson, Dimitri Orlov, Brendan Dillon, Justin Schultz, you know, Zendaya Chara, Nick Jensen. That those are some pretty big guys, and Dillon and Chara that can throw their weight around. Um, Orlov can kind of do the same, but with the Carlson and Schultz, those are offensive-minded guys. Same with Nick Jensen. So there seems like to be a pretty good balance. But you're right; I think it's going to be interesting to see how they're all utilized and how you kind of don't lean too far one way versus the other. Who's your? Uh... I'm really curious. Who's your most interesting player to watch in terms of the coming sort of days and weeks here as we get towards the season? And also once we get into the season and games start happening for real in terms of um, how they're used, sort of mm-hmm. what Laviolette's able to get get out of them the most. Um, is there someone who like you're really curious to see how that development winds up working out for them? Um, I think... I think I have two. One guy who they just added, I would say, I have one guy who they just added, one veteran. I think the guy who they just added would be Connor Sherry, Hmm. just because the Capitals have been looking for a 12th forward. It feels like the entire offseason, a lot of people felt like Caps prospect Daniel Sprung would come in and just kind of fill that role, whatever. He's he's the 12th forward. Um, It's going to work out. It's going to be fine. And then they go ahead and they get out and they get Sherry. And I think it's been very interesting to kind of see him in camp, how he started up with the you know, group A, skating with the NHLers. And he's just been on that third line with Lars Eller and Richard Ponick. And if that's actually going to be viable for the entire season, or if they actually needed to go out and maybe get someone bigger um, than a Connor Sherry and to kind of fill that role or if they're okay with it. So that's one of the ones that I'm still, I'm not sure how I feel about it, um, but we'll see how it happens in season. And then in terms of a veteran, I think I'm really interested in seeing Kuznetsov's progression mm, yep. under Laviolette. Um, I just want to see if off the jump he's engaged, if he's mentally engaged, if he is still kind of the Kuznetsov that Caps fans remember in 2018, or if he kind of still has that kind of regression that he's had, honestly, the last two years where he's been up and down, um, flashes of brilliance, and then flashes of what are you doing um, on the ice. So really interested to see him and how things progress there. I mean, he's still on the top line with Alex Ovechkin, Tom Wilson, um, but maybe Laviolette starts to play with those lines later on as well. But yeah, those are the two guys for me. Yeah, because that's all definitely who I was thinking of when I was saying that if you fit in with Peter Laviolette, mm-hmm. you're going to have a great time. But if you don't, it's going to be rocky. And I think, you know, if you're Laviolette, you, the way you look at you have to look at it, I think, is 
Kuznetsov opens so many doors or kind of possibilities for this team where when he's playing up to his capabilities, it makes them an entirely different group than when he's a defensive liability, when he's kind of not engaged, when he's not doing what he can with the puck. And so it's up to him as a coach to get the most out of him. But it does seem like, you know, stylistically, there definitely could be a bit of a clash there. And I'm really curious to see whether he is able to kind of unlock him and get the most out of him because especially the past two years, his underlying defensive numbers have been amongst the worst in the league. And mm-hmm. and even offensively, his numbers kind of cratered this past season and, and it just simply wasn't good enough for what we know he's capable of and what this team needs out of him. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of it, you know, again, it's probably the mentality. It's the how can Peter Laviolette kind of hold him accountable. But I'm actually curious to kind of see if other players will kind of be holding him accountable as well, just with the additions of Chara. You know, Alex Ovechkin's probably like, you know, it's always been there with him too. Um, you have a really young goaltender and Elia Samsonov, so maybe he knows that he has to kind of step up more. Um, but yeah, I mean, overall with his progression, I just think it's going to be one of those seasons that is either I think going to be really, really good for him. Or again, if he doesn't get along with Laviolette, doesn't really fit in with that system. um, It could be very similar to what we saw the last two years. The player that I'm really curious to see, not necessarily because like it's a huge make or break year for him, but it's Jakob Vrana because Mm -hmm. I think, you know, people might be surprised to learn that his 38 five on five points led the team last season and they were top 25. They were tied with guys like Stone and William Nylander and and Stamkos. And if you adjust it on a per minute basis, he was right up there with some of the most efficient scorers in the league. Um, You know, he's just so versatile for them where he can kind of move around. And it felt like with the juggling they were doing in the past where sometimes he'd be playing with Kuznetsov, sometimes he'd be playing with Backstrom, then he'd, they'd get him playing on the third line with Eller. Um, it felt like they were asking him to do a lot of different things and he was thriving in, in all those different environments. But, you know, he turns 25 this year. He's up for a new deal. He'll still be an RFA, but that clock is ticking towards the, his UFA years. And the production's been there, but for whatever reason, he still plays like under five, 15 minutes a night on average. Mm-hmm. And it feels like there's still more there to um, to kind of unlock or get out of him. And so I'm really curious to see sort of how he fits in this new system, how he's used, and if he can take another step because he's like he's been remarkably fun to watch and super efficient, but it does feel like there's still more there for, to, for him to give the Capitals. Yeah, definitely. I think Ferrana is definitely one of those dark horses that maybe people around the league just, yeah, they just don't know him. Then I think he's going to have a really good year. I mean, he's had career highs the last two years. Um, the only issue with Verona is that he's had zero points the last two postseasons, um, which for the Capitals is pretty unacceptable in terms of, you know, what he brings to the ice. But yeah, overall, I mean, you're right. His minutes are kind of low just in comparison to others just because he doesn't get any time on the first unit power play. I think, you know, if he had, maybe some of those shots on the first unit power play, then maybe you could see even more goals. You could see, you know, maybe him open up even more. Um, but obviously that first unit's already stacked with, you know, Ovechkin, Oshie, um, you know, John Carlson, Kuznetsov, all of them. So I think that'll be really interesting moving forward to see if the Capitals kind of tweak with any of those um, special teams just for Verona. But overall, I think, you know, I think I talked to Peter Bondra last year about him and he's really, really high on the kid. He thinks he's really great. He skates really well. He has really good, you know, hockey IQ. He just, he knows where to be. Um, And yeah, I think he has a really, really good shot and definitely in training camp this season. I know it's only training camp, but he's definitely uh, beaten Samsonov and Anderson a couple of times and some shots that maybe shouldn't have gone in. Um, But definitely, definitely um, one to watch this season. Yeah. I guess another player for me to watch is, Ilya Samsonov, we talked about, um, you know, how, uh, how I guess the Capitals viewed, you know, they, they let Braden Holpe go, and I think it was understandable, and it wasn't surprising given his performance the past couple of years and the money he made, and they sort of still felt, though, that I think they wanted to have a bit of a kind of safety blanket or, or, or a plan B in case Samsonov isn't fully ready to be unleashed as the workhorse number one. And so they brought in Henrik Lundqvist. That unfortunately didn't work out. They're bringing in Craig Anderson now. I think we'll see with, with Vitek Vanacek. But what's interesting to me is I had Kevin Woodley on this podcast, I think last year at some point, and he was talking about the Capitals goalies. And, and two things really stuck out. One was... Um, the, what I had mentioned earlier with Holpe, how uh, some of the adjustments 
for ClearSight analytics show that you know the defensive environment was really bad and that needed to be taken into account when looking at mm-hmm. Capitals goalies numbers. But the other one that was more interesting for me was his sort of um, depiction of like Samsonov's adjustment to North America and how much he'd kind of struggle with that and how that needed to be taken into account contextually when looking at his numbers in the AHL. And, and so we saw last year he steps up to the plate in the NHL he played well. His numbers declined a little bit down the stretch, and I wonder how much of that was the team's play in front of him and how much of it was sort of just being in, in kind of uh, new territory for him with the games he was playing and, and the wear and tear of a, and the grind of an NHL season. But now um, it really seems like the crease is his. Like It seems like there's no more kind of barrier there in terms <laughs> of they're banking on him to be um, the number one they're going to need him to be. Um, we'll see if the defense in front of him can be better, as we mentioned, but it seems like there's going to be a lot on his shoulders here, and, and I'm really curious to see um, how he holds up to that, um, what his performance looks like, and sort of what we can expect from him moving forward. Yeah, I mean, not to put like the entire team and season on Samsonov, but Samsonov is such a huge part um, of this Capitals team because behind him, I mean, Right now, it seems like it's going to be a Vitek Vanacek. It could be a Craig Anderson, but there's not a lot going on behind him. So he's pretty much it for the Capitals. And yeah, I think overall, you know, he's never been in this position of having to have a number one, you know, goalie role in the NHL. And what is that going to look like? Can he really handle the wear and tear? Can he handle the conditioning? Um, you know, he's coming off an injury in Russia. That was an upper body. It was a neck shoulder injury. Um, so yeah, that was really hard for him. He had really hard rehab work. Um, he just stayed in Washington for the entire offseason, didn't go back to Russia. So he's been on the ice for quite some time, but can he actually handle an NHL season? Um, obviously, the organization feels strongly that he can, but I think it's still kind of yet to be seen. So overall, yeah, I think Samsonov has a really big challenge ahead of him, and I think people are fairly confident that he can, you know, do the workload. But um we're, we're just going to have to see. I think Vitek Vanacek will be interesting <laughs> uh, behind him as a potential backup. Obviously, he's a prospect. They both played together in Hershey in the AHL, but very little NHL experience between the two. Vitek has none. Yeah, well, Samsonov played 26 games last year, I think, you know, hopefully. Mm-hmm. 30s range this season, as it seems like, a, as a natural mm-hmm. progression. And I think, you know, he had like a 9-13 final five or six games last year really dipped it when you play under 30 games like each one is gonna make such a big swing the overall numbers i think if you remove that last game against the rangers where he gave up six goals his save percentage bounces up to like 917 or 918 for the season and it makes a big difference in terms of sort of the outlook of evaluating how his rookie year went but yeah i think it's important to remember he's turning 24 this season um you know uh, Igor Shosturkin is like a year older. Ilya Sorokin, who's coming into the league for the Islanders, mm-hmm. is like a year and a half older. So he's part of this group of um, really young, exciting goalies with a bright future in the Metro Division. But it just seems like for now, because he has been in our lives for a while, you just kind of forget that he's still super young and, and also has like a, a big leap here to make. It's a big difference heading into a year with um, no one kind of really there around. To, I mean, there's Vitek Vanacek is there, but you know, last year he comes in and the expectations are pretty low because Brayden Holtby is still there, and this is just an entirely different animal for him to deal with in terms of like a, an expectations basis. Yeah, definitely. I I do feel strongly that if you know Henrik Lundqvist was in the Capitals room and he was playing for the Capitals this season, um, it'd be kind of a different story with Samsonov. He'd have someone to kind of ask questions to. He'd have like a mentor to kind of lean on. He'd be able to see how Henrik operates and you know on and off the ice. And while maybe Lundqvist would have pushed him for that starting role, it would have been a competition. Um, maybe something there. I do think there was going to be a lot to be learned from him. Now, obviously, Samsonov isn't looking over his shoulder, so I guess that's a pro for him that he knows this is his crease, he knows this is his situation, and it's his time, but I think all of that loss with Henrik not in the room is probably a really big thing um, overall for the team, but yeah, I think moving forward for Samsonov, just have to realize that he's young, he's still a kid, he's still learning, but definitely the Capitals have felt strongly enough that they're willing to give him the shot. Well, speaking of being young and being a kid, Alex Ovechkin. Um, 
so I'm proud of us. We made it like 40 minutes into this show or whatever without really I talking know. about him That's- that much. It seems like we're kind of selling him a bit short there, but it's, uh, it's a testament to how interesting this team is that there are legitimate different things to discuss. But so for Ovi, I guess this is the thing that I'm most interested to begin with. Um, you know, he, this is the last year of his contract. He is negotiating his own contract, much like Nick Backstrom did. And uh, Backstrom, for those that don't remember, is now in year one of a five-year, $46 million deal. Um, the crazy thing for me is I was on the on the Capitals Cap Friendly page, and I was looking at Ovechkin's past contract, or the one he's, he's finishing up right now. And it's remarkable to remember that he's finishing up that 13-year $124 million deal that he signed in 2008 because I remember at the time people thinking like, oh my God, like what what a contract. There's no way he's going to wind up actually playing that one out. Like, well, how is this going to look by the time we get to the end of it? And here we are in 2020 and he's still the leading league le- le- leader and goal scored and is still <laughs> um, doing his thing. But the thing that amazed me the most looking at that contract was it's such like a relic from a bygone era where the structure of it is there's no signing bonus money involved. He's making either nine or $10 million even every single year of the deal. So it wasn't front loader or back loader. It was just like very evenly split with no shenanigans, no perks, no bells and whistles. And it's just such a, such a far departure from the superstar contracts we see in the current CBA where they're all just so like front loaded with signing bonus money. And you're not really expecting them to play out those final years of the deal. If they're getting into their thirties with him, it was just, it was just such a, such a sort of unique uh, contract that is just unlike anything we see these days. Yeah. You know, what's funny when we were talking to Alex Oveshkin the other day about, you know, him negotiating his own contract, how things were going, um, you know, he had said, Oh, you know, I've done this before, you know, like 13 years ago. Um, you know, like how hard could it be basically, but you're so right. Like (laughs) 13 years later, it's way different in terms of contracts, in terms of how he needs to negotiate, um, in terms of what he needs to think of. And before, yeah, he's just a young kid who's getting this over hundred million dollar deal for 13 years and, you know, quick, simple, all right, let's go. And now I think it's going to take a little bit more time. It's probably going to be a lot of, you know, numbers in terms of how much does he think that he deserves? How much do the capitals think that he deserves, um, you know, how long does he actually want to be a Washington Capital for? Um, a lot of questions. So I think, yeah, moving forward, it'll be really interesting to see how those contract talks uh, continue. Yeah, does he, does he need like a, a refresher? Does he know that signing bonuses exist? Like, does he know that he can, not, <laughs> yeah, that, not, that, not that he's like I mean, <laughs> missing uh, meals or needs money badly, but like you can get some of that money up front. You don't have to wait until the final year of the deal to get your fair share of it. Like it, it's, it's remarkable. I'm very curious to see if he's aware of all those little perks. You know, Nicholas Backstrom did joke that he offered to help be his agent and uh, Vetchkin declined. So uh, we'll, see <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Um, so he's 35 now. He scored 48 goals in 68 games last year. And um, I was talking about this with Chris Johnson recently on the podcast, but it's remarkable. I've spent a lot of this uh, time off from hockey, just like watching old tape and stuff and, and just watching young Alex Ovechkin in the first couple of years of, in the league of him just flying up and down the ice and just kind of like bull rushing opposing defenders and goalies and just being an absolute lunatic. And now the current version still has those flashes, but like he's just entirely remodeled his game much in the way like a basketball player would to be more of a spot up shooter in the second half of his career and just the sort of longevity and the ability to um, kind of seamlessly make that adjustment is something that uh, I never sort of cease to marvel at. I'd be really curious, um, you know, not that he would really, I guess, talk about this too much while he's still playing. He doesn't want to give away any of his secrets, but as he gets towards uh, the final years playing professional hockey and playing in the NHL, I'd be really curious if he gets like kind of more sort of self-reflective and, and sort of open about um, just kind of like that trajectory of his career, how much it's changed, sort of how much of it was out of necessity and how much of it was actually sort of um, pre- pre-planned versus kind of this like organic transition because he just physically couldn't move up and down the ice the way he once used to when he was younger. I'm, I'm really interested in sort of how that happens for, for a star player um, because it, 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 you know, it, it's it's a pretty big change in stylistically in the way he's uh, changed his game over the years. Yeah, you're right, and I think you know, I think some people have probably tried to like get at get at him and ask that question in different ways. And I think his variation of the answer is, oh, you know, the game is evolving; I have to evolve with it. 
um, type of situation where I think that's definitely true, but I, you're right. I'm definitely really curious to see what he kind of thinks about it. And, you know, if he sees himself, you know, young Alex Ovechkin, yeah, running up and down the ice, throwing his body everywhere versus now just kind of sitting in that office, getting ready and still obviously very, very effective. Um, but right. A totally kind of different approach to what it was before, but yeah, I mean, Alex Ovechkin still going to be Alex Ovechkin. He's still going to score. Um, so I'm really interested to see how he does in kind of this shortened setting, um, especially knowing that Gretzky's record is it's far away, but it a lot of people thought it was close at the end of last year. Well, it year. is. I mean, he needs 26 goals, I believe, to jump into fifth all time, and he would leapfrog uh, Gardner, mm-hmm. Phyllis Pasito, and Marcel Dion. And, and I, you know, everyone's kind of speculating or guessing or trying to be a mind reader. I don't think anyone really knows. Maybe even Alex Ovechkin doesn't <laughs> know, but sort of what that appetite is like in terms of sticking around and chasing that. And, you know, it's one thing while you're scoring nearly 50 goals and your team is still a playoff team and you're their top player. And it's another when you're kind of, you know, on a bad team and you're just sticking around for the sake of moving up the leaderboard and, you know, your body hurts and it doesn't feel the way it used to, but you're still trotting yourself (laughs) back out there. And so, if the Capitals do wind up uh, kind of transitioning to that uh, as a franchise, it'll be very interesting to see um, whether that fire kind of still exists. It's, it's tough to imagine him walking away from it because I feel like no one just like viscerally enjoys scoring more scoring goals more than he does and just yes. like celebrations and everything. <laughs> so it's kind of crazy to think that one day he would just decide he doesn't want to do that anymore. But um, you know, it's, it, it remains to be seen. Like it's, it's, it is a very uh, unique situation. It's also a very, um, you know, tricky situation to try to kind of prognosticate or try to uh, think of what it's going to look like a couple of years down the road. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, like I know he's told me before, like he obviously loves the game of hockey. He loves scoring goals. He loves celebrations. He loves when his teammates score. He loves those celebrations, all of that. But I think, you know, the last year, you know, his, her last couple of years, he's had two sons, right? Um, family's been really important to him. And I know a really big thing for him is that he really wanted his oldest son, Sergei, to watch him play and remember him playing. And I think that's such a really big factor to him and his family. And so I think he's going to play the game as long as he physically is able to. Um, I think you're going to have to like drag him off the ice um, to get him off there. But yeah, I definitely think, you know, just in terms of terms of his contract, I think, you know, maybe looking at a Nick Backstrom contract and, you know, he got that extension for five years. I don't think it'd be crazy if Ovechkin signed for four years in Washington. I'm sure um, there's a lot of other shorter deals in place, but you've got to think that that's kind of the window that everyone's looking yeah. at here. And then they just ride off into the sunset together. Yeah. You know, perfect ending. Yeah. Tie it with a storybook. <laughs> um, I guess the final thing here for me is uh, sort of the pros and cons of being, an older team in general in this weird season, right? Because it's such a uh, unique environment in terms of there's fewer games, obviously, they'll only be playing 56 as opposed to 82, but there's also going to be quite significantly less travel too, right? Like you're going to be going somewhere, probably playing two or three games there and flying back home, maybe playing another couple games. And it's going to fly by, I think, as opposed to uh, a regular season where you've got all these kind of extended West Coast trips and you're bouncing around, you're playing uh, in five different cities in a span of 10, say, eight days or whatever. And that stuff all adds up and accumulates. And so I wonder how much of that um, is actually going to benefit this capital team and how much of that went into the thinking of sort of the way they approach things and maybe the appetite to bring in as it in Ochara because they probably view this as kind of this uh, one year sort of aberration where you can play things a little bit differently and then see how it goes next off season as we approach the expansion draft and as, as things change and we hopefully get back to a more regular environment. It feels like it's this kind of uh, one year sort of vacuum and maybe that, that, that changes your thinking and the way you approach uh, the team building perspective. Yeah, I definitely think it did. I think it's kind of like, okay, you have 56 games, short in schedule, back-to-backs. Um, you have a really young goaltender. You still have the majority of your core. Let's add in some veteran guys that clearly are going to elevate this team and kind of see where it goes. It's also the first year of LaViolette's system. So let's see how that goes as well. Um, but I think overall, 
having that experience and having that veteran leadership in this shortened season is going to help the Capitals. Um, I did kind of think the same thing, though, headed into the postseason in Toronto, and clearly <laughs> that kind of backfired. Yeah. So I could definitely backfire um, headed into the season, but that's kind of the similarities that I thought. I thought, you know, in the bubble, okay, veteran guys, they kind of can get away from the unconventionalist things of the postseason. They're just kind of put it all behind them and play, and it just kind of turned out to be the opposite maybe of just – okay, well, maybe we don't really want to be in this bubble or at least our play wasn't up to the standards of where we thought it would be following a really big pause because we're an older team. Um, But I definitely think this season, just in general, how it's stacked, um, how it is going to be vastly different. I think it's going to greatly benefit having more of those leader guys in the room, more of the guys holding other people accountable. Um, And definitely, again, last season, the Capitals kind of got off to that really, really hot start and they didn't really turned down until probably November, December. So there was a good chunk of time that the Capitals were up top, you know, John Carlson's breaking records left and right. So I think it could be pretty beneficial for the Capitals this season. All right, Sam. Well, I think we covered it. Is there anything on the Capitals that, that we, uh, we didn't get to? Um, Oh God, I really do feel like we talked about everyone. Um, I don't think so. I think maybe like, I'm pretty curious myself about a TJ Oshie mm. this season. Um, just because a lot of people have talked about, you know, TJ Oshie, Seattle Kraken, expansion draft, like that's a lock to a lot of people. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see how TJ does this season um, and how that maybe would affect the Capitals thinking at all, or if they're already kind of set on, all right, we'll see you later. Um, this is going to be your last year as a Capital. So that's one of the biggest, I think, kind of tucked in storylines for me. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think I imagine also from Seattle's perspective, they'll be watching very closely to, to see how he does as well, because <laughs> there's a bit of money left on that. And, and uh, you know, it, it's a definitely a, yeah. a consideration for them. Um, all right. Well, I'm excited to see how this all unfolds. I think, you know, we kind of couched this entire conversation with like, this is what we think, but let's wait and see because we'd be lying to the listeners if we were pretending like we know how it's going to turn out. I I think, you know, that's probably true in general for most teams, but I think in this particular case, it feels like the range of outcomes is so wide that um, it'll keep us on our toes and it'll keep us guessing. And and I think that's exciting. I I embrace that unknown and that uncertainty. Um, Plug some stuff. Where can people check you out? What are you working on these days? All that good stuff. Yeah, definitely check me out on Twitter. Um, yeah, always putting updates from Capitals Practice, Samantha J. Powell. All my stuff's on the WashingtonPost.com website. Um, yeah, definitely just working on a lot of different things headed into the season. Hopefully something a little bit more of a deep dive into Elias Samsonov. So hopefully that comes out before the season so people can know a little bit more about him uh, since he's pretty much a unknown outside of the people in Washington. But yeah, that's about awesome. it. Awesome. This was a blast, Sam. I'm glad we got to do this. And let's definitely check back in and, and see uh, if we can get some answers to uh, to all the questions we pose in this. <laughs> Absolutely. Can't wait. All right. Well, that's going to be it for today's episode of the Hockeypedia Cast. I wanted to thank all of you for listening, as always. And I wanted to thank those of you that have dropped us some lovely ratings and reviews in the past couple of weeks. If you haven't, please consider taking a minute to do so. It is greatly appreciated, as always. Uh, I hope you enjoyed my chat with Samantha Pell on this episode. If you did, definitely make sure to go follow her on Twitter. She's one of my favorite beat writers in the game right now, and I think she's done a legitimately fantastic job covering the Capitals, so I can't recommend following her enough. Um, we've got some fun preview content coming here soon. The plan is to do as many shows as we can and jam in as much content as we can uh, leading up to the start of the season. I've got some fun episodes planned that... We'll hopefully be able to make happen on the timing of everything, but we'll see. Uh, I'd love to bring you guys a fantasy preview, a show about team over-unders and predictions for player awards, plus some stuff on breakout candidates, players to watch, all that jazz. Um, But yeah, we'll see what we can make happen. In the meantime, if you haven't for whatever reason, you can go back into the archives and check out some of the shows we've done most recently. We dropped the watchability rankings with Jeff Merrick, and uh, that kind of sells itself. Chris Johnson and I put out one right in the middle of the holidays about players, teams, and situations that we're going to be following closely this coming season, and CJ brought the heat in that one like he always does. We also most recently did a deep dive on the Ottawa Senators with Haley Salvian right before she bolted for the Flames beat. So if you haven't checked those out for whatever reason, because you're busy for the holidays, or you're just getting back into hockey now that the season's approaching, uh, all of them hold up well i think still and uh, are worth listening so check those out uh that's gonna be it for today's show thanks for listening 
and we will be back soon with plenty more. The Hockey Pediocast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey pediocast.